Matthew chapter 5, if you would. You can see on screen, today we're talking about how God plans to use us, the church. Just so you'll know, the church is the most widespread, longest existing educational institution on the planet. Do you realize that? More than public schools, private schools, anything you can imagine, the church has been here for 2,000 years in various capacities, teaching gospel, teaching democracy, teaching fair treatment for everybody, teaching those crucial truths that have culminated in a nation that's really done some great things. We are a flawed nation and we know that. We'll talk about that today. And God knew that even though he can work and create a great nation such as ours, that we're going to mess things up. And so he cares for us by continually teaching us how to act. And he does it through the church. And that's God's plan to help our society. Matthew chapter 5, open to a passage and hold it if you would. As always we pray. I'll give you a few moments to pray for your nation, for others in our church, Lita Hornaday in particular, facing some difficulties in Lyle, and just pray for them, and just pray that God can use us in any way that he sees fit. I'll give you a few moments of prayer. You can pray as you see fit. I'll close, and we'll look at this passage together. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this great nation. You have created in this world a beacon of light for so many. Flawed as we are, we are a nation that stands for freedom and justice. And people understand that. You have done a great work here, Father. We ask today for your cleansing for this nation. We are a sinful people. And we ask for your cleansing and for your mercy and forgiveness. We ask a special prayer for this nation, that you would help us to be the people that you have created. We pray for the church in this nation, that we would rise to be the people of God, giving leadership and guidance and direction. We ask today, Father, that you would hear our prayers, that you would hear our words of praise, that you would work on our lives as only you can. Father, we know that in our nation, there are many people who struggle. We pray for those who have committed their lives to help. Those first responders, soldiers, policemen, nurses and doctors and ambulance drivers, all those. Be with them, Father. Protect them wherever they serve. Use them to protect life. Use them to help us all experience freedom. We pray for our leaders that you would guide and direct them. They are people who have power over us. We've elected them and given them that power. We pray, Father, for wisdom for them, for discretion and discernment, for the ability to use that power with wisdom and patience and for the common good. In this nation, we struggle against sin, against differing political winds, against social currents that challenge us. To be honest, Father, we really don't understand how we can survive in so many ways. But we know that you have been with us, been with your people over the centuries. We pray that you would work again 
They help us to remain free. They help the church to be strong. Father, help us. It seems as if that's all we can say. Help us, Father. We follow you in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we follow the pledge. We do the things with flags. Flag protocol is kind of a thing for some of you and me too. And um, you may not realize this, but the nation has never really agreed on how to handle the flag correctly. I was taught one way in Boy Scouts. I didn't know this, but in the 70s, the VFW changed some of those protocols. As we know that sometimes even presidents in their administration do not understand correct protocol. And so what has to happen is we have to get together and learn again. Not just how to handle our flag, that's one thing, but how to live as a people. How to be Christian. How to be American. It's okay to learn those things to acknowledge that maybe we have forgotten some things. I've watched my kids struggle to teach their kids, my grandkids, things about our nation and others. And it's been interesting to watch. Today we're going to start with a video that shows the story of one father just trying to teach his child something of our nation's heritage. Debbie? seeing things click in my son's head. It's taken the better part of the last nine years to master the art of catching this elusive microscopic moment. The instant he realized where hamburgers and his little sister came from have been among the most enjoyable. Third grade has taught Hudson a lot about the roots of our country. So when a business trip sent me to DC recently, I thought it was the perfect opportunity for a father-son trip and for me to watch all the little dots connect in his head about what he'd been learning in school. We saw where the very first president lived. We came all the way out here for this. And we saw where the president lives today. son taught me what he'd learned in school about the men who framed our country. And I taught my son about the men and women who are still shaping our country today. And that's why the legislative branch is broken into two different sections. Yeah, but why do they argue so much? We walked in the footsteps of countless men and women who stood up for their rights. And we sat at the feet of the great emancipator, who to this day still sits vigilant over all of our rights. He's a lot bigger in person. Uh-huh. I've been looking for those clicks, those aha moments. But my son surprised me. He had it all pretty well figured out. 
but we still had one place left to visit. What are these, Dad? These are our heroes, son. What kind of heroes? These are the heroes that made possible everything you and I saw today. These are American heroes, son. Is that a hero, Dad? Click. Yeah, that's a hero. Can we go get pizza now? Those moments never last as long as a father would like. And today I pray that the families of these fallen can somehow feel the goodness of God amidst their loss. Come on, Dad, I've been waiting forever. Okay, let's go. It is because of the sacrifices of our heroes that I have the freedom to experience moments like this. So to all the men, women, and families of those who served in the armed forces. Thank you for your sacrifice. You will never be forgotten. Those are hard lessons to learn, aren't they? It's one thing to look at statues and read and say pledges. Those are all good things. But when you stand and see that sea of markers, you understand. You know that I've been trying to help homeschool some of my grandkids. And one of the things we've learned studying history is nations come and go, tribes come and go, there are powerful leaders. And then when a leader begins to falter, another group grows up. And evidently, I've drilled this into my granddaughter's head so much. I said, and what happens then? And my daughter rolled her eyes and said, and everybody dies. Which is exactly what happens, isn't it? In world history, nations come, they build, they get strong, they dominate. Then they begin to fail. And in the ensuing battle, it seemed like everybody dies and the cycle starts all over. And that is exactly the cycle that enables us to exist as a people. A lot of people died. And amazingly, God uses that kind of sacrificing gift to teach us great lessons, to allow us to be free and strong and all those kinds of things. So we're talking today about how we can continue this process of learning and making our nation strong and hopefully helping our nation to be strong. So on screen is this idea that every nation needs to hear this loud voice of faith-based wisdom and instruction. In other words, not only do we continue to need to teach our children American history, we need to teach them Christian history. We need to teach them the value of the church. And I think probably most of us need to be reminded. I said earlier that the church is probably the oldest and largest and probably the most effective educational institution in human history. It may surprise you. We think of churches as half-empty buildings, singing old songs, reading an old book. That's part of it. But really, it is a dynamic organization. It is the bride of Christ. And God wants to use us. 
Follow along with me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Jesus talking. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It's good for nothing anymore, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. As you can see on screen, without a vision, the people perish. What Jesus was doing in that passage was giving us a vision, not just of something that could be, but of something that he wants to work within us to create and empower and educate and all those kinds of things. In other words, the vision for us is God wants to use us to educate and train our people. Not just church people, there's that. But the church has a dramatic role in a society and culture. So we have to do that. And so on screen today are some ideas that we can do. The way we as a church can teach our nation. And it's kind of an iffy thing. Because we have to be careful. First of all, our dramatic truth, you may not realize this, but we do not live in a Christian nation. We live in a nation of founding fathers, many of whom were Christian, many were not. Most of them, in fact, were deists. And what a deist is, is someone who believes in God, believes in God working on the planet, but they don't necessarily follow Jesus as Savior. And many of our founding fathers did not follow Jesus, but they were biblically educated. And they thought that there was a God who created and a God who was working. But they didn't necessarily follow Jesus. Now many did. But we were never intended to be a Christian nation. We were intended to be a nation where everybody, Christian and non-Christian alike, could get together. Now that doesn't mean we can't teach Christian truth in our nation. But it means that one of the things that we have to do is learn to allow people to be non-Christian. I was talking to my daughter last night, and I have told you about her experiences. They adopted an Afghani family, one of the families that escaped from Afghanistan when it fell. And these, this is a family that helped us. They helped American citizens. They helped American soldiers stay alive. They helped the American enterprise in Afghanistan. But they're not Americans, and they're not Christian. And they've been together for a year now, having a lot of good times and family gatherings and things like that. And she said that the relationship is changing because no longer are they just new people trying to be nice. Now they're just people living their lives and they get together and have all these discussions. And they had a discussion for the first time about spiritual issues. Now, just so you'll know, this is part of the United Nations work of bringing those people over here. And they allowed Christian groups to get involved to help these people. But they said, listen, just get them settled here first. And so my daughter has waited patiently. And so now they're starting to talk about Jesus. And they're starting to realize that they're here. These people love each other, these families. One Christian family talks Jesus. The other Muslim family talks Esau. Abraham a little, but Esau. 
And they're beginning to realize that there are vast differences. And we were laughing last night and we realized she was telling us what was going on. And this individual, the father of the family, and it all goes through the father of the family because of that culture. The father of the family is now trying to witness to my daughter to convert her to Islam. While my daughter, the Christian, is trying to witness to the father to convert him to Christianity. And so there's this contradictory thing coming on. And she's beginning to struggle with the idea. She goes, well, I have to confront him somewhere along the way, don't I? I said, yes. She goes, because they're good people and they want to do the right thing, but they're not saved. Right, Daddy? Yes. Evidently, she's been listening to my sermons all those years. I didn't know. <laughs> kind, of, kind of shocked me, actually. So she's being confronted with this idea that this Christian woman that loves this Muslim family that wants to help them and welcome them into this great nation of ours, there will be a confrontation somewhere along the way. A loving confrontation, but a confrontation nonetheless. One, Jesus versus Esau. More to come. I'll tell you about the story in a few months. Those are the kinds of things that Christians have to do, isn't it? One of the things that we have to learn to do as Christians is to understand that even though we allow people in this nation, we invite other people into our nation, as Christians, our task is to bring them to Jesus. Not necessarily to make them American citizens. If that be the case, great. But more importantly, lead them to Jesus. The ultimate goal, I think, for my daughter, because she knows that this family will not stay in America long term, probably. They will go back to Afghanistan if they can and survive. It's at home. The goal is to lead them to Christ. So when they go back home, Christian, they will witness to their friends and share Jesus with them. You see, that's the ultimate goal. It's more than just making friends. It's making disciples. Like Jesus said. So on screen are some things that we can share. Things that Christians can do in this great nation. To honor Christ's call to us all. A saving faith. Like my daughter is beginning to discover. Very emotional thing here. <laughs> you know when your kids grow up and you realize they're adults. That's kind of a bizarre thing. And so my 39-year-old daughter is becoming an adult, very Christian adult. And she's being confronted with this challenge of sharing gospel with someone who has spent their life rejecting Jesus, consciously rejecting Jesus as Savior. And it's going to be hard. And yet, that is exactly what Christians are to do, isn't it? To share Jesus. To challenge people in their faith. To confront someone, a Muslim, a pagan or whatever and say listen you have your religion and we respect that but only Jesus saves Jesus gives a chance for you to be saved from your sin to receive a cleansing to return or have to receive eternal life and all those kinds of things those are reserved for Christians Christians need to talk about that I'm afraid that the church in America has failed because we've gotten caught up in the social battles. We talk about abortion and the trans movement, homosexuality, as well we should. But really, the bigger issue is salvation, isn't it? Of course it is. What people do with their lives right now in terms of those social issues affects them, yes. But this idea of salvation in Jesus, that's eternity, isn't it? That is life 
and death. So one thing that the church can do in America, even if we can't convert our government, and more than likely our government would distort the church beyond recognition if we got it in there, one of the things the church must do is be a strong witness for Jesus. What that means is, number one, let's love people. Quit ragging on everybody that's different than us and just love them. And in the name of Jesus, teach truth as graciously as we can. You do not have to condemn people or call them names or condemn them to hell. The Holy Spirit is fully capable of that. God calls you to love people in the name of Jesus. And when they ask you why you're nice, to tell them because we follow the resurrected Christ. And bring in that word, resurrected Christ. And talk about Jesus, crucified and resurrected Son of God. And how he challenges everybody else now. All other faiths aren't the same. That's what God wants from the church. That's what America really needs from the church. Think about it. Let's imagine... And this is a fantasy. Let's imagine that all Christians could agree on abortion. Right? Now, that's not going to happen. You and I both know that. But let's just imagine for a moment that all Christians could agree on what to believe about abortion. Would that save our nation? Well, no. It would save some lives, yes. Wouldn't save our nation. Because there are bigger problems, aren't there? All those social issues that are so important to us, they are important, but they aren't the issue. The issue is Jesus. And that's what the church needs to focus upon. We can't make people live Christian lives. Maybe we can expose them to Christian love and lead them to faith. Next on screen is another thing that we can do that's salt and light. A foundational ethic. This means, is there something we can teach people that is Bible-based that wouldn't be so religious as to be offensive? Because, and you know this, not everybody wants a preacher as a president. Not everybody wants to go to church and hear Billy Graham or all those kinds of things. And they're not going to listen to a bunch of religious teachings. So what does the scripture teach us? What does the gospel offer that could help people? So let's think about it. One is in front of our TV every day. How should we treat people that are different than us? The African American, the Hispanic, the homosexual, the trans. How should we treat these people? Well, how did Jesus treat the woman caught in adultery? Talked about her last week, didn't we? What did he do? I'm not going to condemn you. Go. Sin no more challenged her in her sin, but was very gracious. Wasn't going to be part of that nonsense where they condemned her in public. He offered her grace and forgiveness. How about as a church, we do that? How about as Christians, you do that? When you encounter people as one of your foundational ethics, as one of those ideas that guide you, you be gracious and kind to people, even when you don't like them. Like my daughter beginning to be challenged by this Muslim family who was now part of her family. And by the way, just so you'll know, they have made a financial commitment and they are officially registered as sponsors of their son who's still out of country. Huge commitment. On the basis of their faith in Jesus. So, 
that speaks volumes, part of your foundational ethic is that you treat people well. Another foundational ethic is that when people hurt you, you forgive. You don't hold grudges. You don't slaughter people because of. You don't condemn people because of. You give mercy. We're not talking about criminal prosecution. We're talking about people in your relationships. You give mercy and grace. Doesn't mean you walk all, let people walk all over you. But sometimes it might. It's up to you. You can go through life mad and angry. I've done that, by the way. I've been mad for years at a time. And some of you have done the same. Because people have hurt me. People have made conscious decisions to hurt me. And I decided to hate them. Yes. I'm a preacher. So I started to think, gee, if, if preachers do that, and I know they do because I know a whole bunch of them. If preachers do that, probably normal folk do too. Let's be better than that. Let's forgive as Jesus taught us to forgive. Salt and light, right? A preservative, something that makes things better. Something that keeps things from going rancid. Culture and relationships can easily devolve and go rancid. Jesus says, be salt and light. A foundational ethic. Equality and justice and all those kinds of things. The things that, interestingly enough, we talk about as Americans, those are very Christian values. So even though... The founding fathers did not create a Christian nation. Significantly, in our founding documents, they talk about a lot of these approaches towards life that are distinctly Christian because they are good regardless. So there's that foundational ethic. Years ago, one of my friends approached me and he was working with an organization in town. This was in another church. And he said, Kevin, I need for you to write a one-page paper about how people can get along with each other. I need it to be short and succinct and I need it to be for non-Christians. I said, seriously? He goes, yeah, you can do that, can't you? I said, well, sure, why not? So I, it was the hardest thing I've ever done because I had to do it on one page. You know, it's easy for a preacher to preach 40 minutes or to write 10 pages. But to get us to stop and not say so much and to write it quickly, that's tough. Because you had to eliminate all the nonsense. So I wrote a short page. And the headline was, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The words of Jesus. Golden rule. Anybody can understand that. You don't have to be a Christian for it to make sense. You don't even have to be five years old. My four-year-old granddaughter gets it. Doesn't do it, but she gets it. This is the kind of thing that Christians can teach. Treat people like you want to be treated. Christians, step up. Teach it. Do it. In the middle of a confrontation, talk about it. What we need to do is treat each other well even though we disagree. You know, that, that it doesn't fix everything. But it might help when you say, we're not going to agree on this one. Let's just get along anyway. You don't have to fight all the time. All sorts of things we can do that can help people. Another one on screen, we can go to that next thing, is a high value placed upon the family system. This is where the gospel gets messy. God gave us the institution of family. He created man and woman. You know that. 
He created us as we are, the ability to propagate, and he planned for mom and dad to stick together and train kids. That's our job. He knows that we fail sometimes. But still, that's God's plan. God's plan is always the best. It isn't what people always do, but it's always the best. People can raise effective children by themselves or in different family systems. That's true. But God's plan is a man and a woman working together to raise kids. Every day I greet kids at the child care, and you know that, and I'm amazed and disappointed and discouraged as how many mamas come when I find out that there's no man in their life or there is a man in their life for a short time. But these kids grow up and the only man they know is the boyfriend of the week. And that's probably all they'll ever know. And I begin to wonder, who teaches these little boys how to act? Who teaches these little girls how to act around a man? And who teaches these boys and girls how to have male and female relationships? My mom and dad were big and loud people. Mama was only loud when she needed to be. Dad was just loud all the time. He was a great big guy. And he was a scary fellow. I don't think my mom was afraid of him, but he was scary to everybody else. Big and strong, and they fought. Never physically abusive, but they fought. And they hugged and kissed and made up. And they showed us that you can do this. They showed us by example that you can fight and you can forgive and move on. And they did that for decades, 60 years plus. Loving and forgiving, fighting. And the cycle repeats over and over. My dad taught me how to treat a woman by what I saw. And then when I was beginning to be one of those guys that wanted to be around women, he, he thumped me a few times and taught me how to act and taught me how to shut my mouth. He said that a lot. Kevin, just shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. He said that a lot. And evidently was a problem. I, they didn't see it. But, you know, shut your mouth. What he was doing was teaching me don't say everything you think. And as a hot-headed 16 and 17-year-old, I needed someone to tell me, shut your mouth. And when I didn't shut my mouth, he was not afraid to throw me up against the wall. Graciously, of course, in the love of Jesus. Never hit me, but I'm sure he wanted to. Shut your mouth, Kevin. We need that today. Not that necessarily his style, but kids need to learn how to act to keep those relationships together, don't they? You don't get it from Oprah. You don't get it from watching people on TV. And believe me, the TV programs that our kids are watching aren't going to help them. But you see, this is God's plan, that man and woman learn to live each, with each other and take care of each other and work together to raise children. And that's God's plan. Not being critical of anyone else. I said this earlier in the year. The farther you get from God's plan, the more difficult it is for him to bless you. And that's probably the best way to say it. Not that God will condemn people. It's just blessings come when you do things correctly. We need to work at that. One other thing on screen is this idea of a strong personal responsibility. One of those uniquely biblical teachings is your life is your choice. What you do affects you. 
Your mama may have done something right or wrong years ago. After you're past 15, 16 years old, it's up to you. You can't blame anybody on you. You can't blame anything on your mom and daddy. The fact that mom and daddy failed or didn't do something right, it's a factor, but you can't blame it. As soon as you're an adult, 18, 19, 20 years old, you are responsible for your life. Children need to be protected and guided, yes. We need to cut them some slack, of course. But adults, scriptures are very clear. You choose. You choose to sin. You choose to treat people well. You choose to give grace, to treat people like you want to be treated. It's up to you. Pretty novel idea in an age when we blame everybody for everything. You can't blame other people. You can't blame another race. You can't blame the government. It's up to you. Yes, people will abuse you. And some people have failed you. That's correct. And your government will fail you because, it, guess what? Your government is made up of people. And they will fail you. Your life is your choice and your responsibility. I was surprised. One of my granddaughters had a conversation with Tammy. And we were, they were talking about different things. And they were driving down the road. And she said, Nana, why do people adopt the road? She'd never noticed that before. She's 13, just kind of coming on. And Tammy was explaining to her, well, those are a group of people that have volunteered to adopt that section of road, and they're going to pick up the trash. And my, my daughter, my granddaughter, who is the sweetest little thing, she goes, you know, I got a problem with that. And Tammy said, what? Yeah, I got a problem with that. She goes, well, what's your problem? She goes, well, why don't people pick up their own trash? Now, there's a novel idea. And my wife said, well, I don't know, but they don't. She goes, well, I think they just need to pick up their own trash. Quit worrying about it. And I thought, now there you go. That's personal responsibility. Pick up your own trash. Clean your yard. Take care of your dog. Blah, blah, blah. All those things. Your life is your choice. And that's one of those uniquely biblical teachings. God blesses people who make good choices. God uses people who make good choices. Now, fortunately, God blesses everybody, good choices or not, but more blessings come when you live according to God's plan. That strong sense of personal responsibility takes away the burden of other people. It gives you a chance to who you want to be. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your faith and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The goal isn't just for you to be a good person. That's part of it. The goal is for you to be a Christian person. The goal is that your friends and those around you will observe this Christian person living their lives. That will observe this Christian person being forgiving. Picking up their own trash. Being responsible for their own life. Talking about Jesus and how he has affected them positively. That's how you shine your light. We've all argued politics. You know, I have never changed anyone's politics in an argument. I've tried. And no one has ever changed my politics in an argument. They've tried. But you know what I have done? And some of you have done this too. I've enabled people to come to faith in Jesus. Not through an argument, but by just explaining God's good grace to us all. 
That's what God wants us to do. You can do it with your kids and grandkids. Do it with your friends. Do it with your spouse. On screen is the final thought. The church in America will earn the right to be heard as its members learn to speak God's truth with love and grace. Now you've noticed I haven't given us the secret to converting our nation to Jesus because there is no secret. And we probably won't convert our nation to Jesus because there's a whole lot of people. And you know, most, most often, not everybody will be saved. That's what the scriptures teach us. But we can influence our nation, not necessarily through legislation, but through the strong witness of good individuals like us that make mistakes and keep at it. God bless us. Jesus knew that we would forget stuff. And so the scripture teaches essentially the same thing over and over. I remember one time, this is when I was a young preacher, I went on a revival team and I preached and gave a devotional. And one guy said, well, what are you doing, Kevin? I said, well, I want to come up with something new. He said, Kevin, listen, people have been preaching Jesus for 2,000 years. You're not going to say anything new. You just need to say what they already know in a way that they will hear it. Stuck with me. There's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes knew that. But instead, what we need to do is reinforce our belief in Jesus, resurrected Son of God, and live our lives for Him. Jesus knew we'd forget, so He said this. When you get together and you eat, remember me. So, we share communion today to do that thing. I want to ask that the deacons come and get in their places. And this meal we share, communion, is a way that Jesus said, when you get together, you can just talk about it. Remind yourself of who I am. Remind yourself that you're Christian. You're not just nice people. You're Christian. You follow resurrected Jesus. So today, as we go into a week of celebration and teaching about our nation, we remind ourselves of who we are. We're God's people. We're the church, bride of Christ. Created through an act of God as we follow him in faith. Why don't you stand with me, please? In this church, we ask that you police yourself. If you follow Jesus, join us. If you haven't made that decision, join us and make that decision to follow Jesus. It's, it's not only proclamation, but celebration and invitation. We ask you, follow Jesus. The way it works here is when... After the prayer is over, the music's going to play and you're going to come down the aisle and get your cup and go back to your seat and you'll notice you've got to fiddle with it. If you see somebody struggling, help them because it's kind of messy. And then we'll take communion and then we'll close. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all you've done for us for this wonderful life. Thank you. Help us to remember you every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul the Apostle was not at the last meal, you know that. But later, he came to know Christ as Savior. And Jesus appeared to him and told him the story. So he tells the story, Paul speaking, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Later in the meal, Jesus said this, Paul reports, In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul explains, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So crucifixion and resurrection is the big deal. It's what makes you Christian. You're not Christian because you're a nice person. You're Christian because you believe in the crucified and resurrected Jesus. People aren't Christians because you grew up in America or because mama was a Christian. That personal responsibility thing kicks in. People are Christian because they follow Jesus, crucified and resurrected Son of God. And this meal reminds us that that is the essence of our faith. Political views are important, yes. But the big issue is where you stand on Jesus. Stand with me, please, if you would. Nate's going to come and lead us in a closing hymn. Make those decisions to follow Jesus. Make them public if you'd like. Nate. Jesus and he said yes as long as you go with me so I'm very proud right now okay. <laughs> your name oh I'm Tim Sandridge everybody this is my son Kane <laughs> he wants to stand up here in front of everybody I'm sure like all of you right when the service is over come and encourage him in the faith and I'll be talking to him later and we'll talk about baptism and all those things and this is the church Christians leading people to know Jesus as Savior. Thanks, Dad. Good job. Pray with me. Father, thank you for all you've done and for this young man who's given his faith to Jesus. Thank you. Be with he and his father and family and help them to nurture and grow in their faith and guide them. Guide us all. Use this act to encourage each of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.